It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. The name of this one is uh, something maybe a little mysterious to some of you, unless you are Italian. Uh, and even if you're Italian, you may not know about it because uh, you'd have to sort of live on one little island called Sardinia. Uh, but it's called Passing on the Kasu Marzu. And uh, this is very significant in the flow of what we're talking about. We, we sort of launched, for, for those of you that missed the first episode yesterday in this new series, this is my fall series, and it's going to go on for seven weeks, and it's a good one. Uh, but it's called Daring to Do is Stanley Dale. And it's basically about reaching the unreached or gaining the heart of God for those that don't know Christ. This is something that all of us doctrinally agree with, but practically our lives have a tough time connecting with it. It's like we're, we're, we're having a difficult time aligning our lives practically with that vision. We're just sort of hoping someone else is dealing with it. It's like, and you're on top of that? Okay, good. That means I don't need to be. And what I would like for each of us as we sort of navigate through this is for each of us to be softened in our inner man to a point of readiness and yes. Even though that yes may lead to sort of the Abrahamic conclusion of where you lay uh, Isaac on the altar, raise your knife, and he says, stop. That, that's fine. If, if God says, I just want you to be amenable and ready and pliable to my ends. And that's important for each of us. I would rather have the end conclusion of this seven-week series be, God, please send me. Send me to the most remote jungle regions of the world. And then God says, no, I have you here. And then you're like, oh, God. I would rather have that as the end conclusion than all of you saying, God, please send someone else. Please, please. I want us to be at that point of readiness where we want to be right in the middle of God's drama, wherever that is. In fact, the hardest, most difficult place, the people that have never heard Jesus, never seen any light in their life, that we crave being the messenger for such a place. Passing on the Kasu Marzu. So Kasu Marzu, for those of you that don't know, and I'll explain this in just a bit, is a food. It's a delicacy. It's a very fine dish. And uh, yet, there are going to be people that are going to, when it's being passed around the table, go, no, no, I'll pass. Passing on the Kasu Marzu? Who would ever pass on this fine delicacy? Well, that's the same with this. It's like God is passing around this opportunity to share the love of Jesus with the lost of this earth. And we're like, no, I'll, I'll pass on the Kasu Marzu. What? You're going to pass on the Kasu Marzu? Oh, I can't believe it. That's what this message is about. Luke 14, 16 through 18, a certain man gave a great supper, I bet they were serving Kasu Marzu, and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. What? If, if the king of the universe is serving up his special dish, wouldn't you want to be there? Wouldn't you want to be present? And yet, it's strange, but we all can identify with this scripture. That there's something in us that recoils from the highness of the call. We would rather, we want to be Christians, don't get us wrong, but we want to live at a lower level. 
We, we don't want to have to live at that level of giving everything. Could we give some things, but not everything? So here's C.T. Studd. He's one of my heroes. We should go crusading for Christ. We have the men, the means, and the ways. Steam and electricity and iron have leveled the lands and bridged the seas. The doors of the world have been opened wide for us by our God. We pray and preach. We bow the knee. We receive. We administer the holy communion of the passion of Christ. We recite the creed triumphantly. We are optimists, everyone. We shout, onward, Christian soldiers marching on to war. And then, and then, we whisper, I, I pray thee have me excused. What glorious humbugs we are. Isn't that great? I'll leave it to C.T. Studd to speak like that. So as we go through this, the name of this series is Daring to Do as Stanley Dale. So even though I'm not going to go into the idea of daring today, I at least want to acquaint you with what we could call two kinds of daring. Because you know that there's daring people in this world right now? That if, if I were to say, name a daring person, you could probably think of a daring person, one of those people that just is inclined to jump out of planes, or is inclined to say, is there a bungee jumping area nearby? And it's like, well, there's a very dangerous one. They're like, oh, even more interested. And they're just daring in their natural bent. That does not mean that they're daring in their spiritual man. There's a difference in daring, and the daring that I want to talk about is the daring of Stanley Dale, not the daring of Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton is one of those fascinating characters in history that really intrigues me. I, I remember I was in Hawaii with Leslie. Uh, this is, I mean, before we had kids, so probably around 20 years ago, and it was a great time, uh, and I remember sitting in a hammock, laying in a hammock every day reading a book, and the book I was reading was called Endurance, which is about Ernest Shackleton's adventure to uh, Antarctica. And so what a thing to be reading when you're in the hot sun. Uh, but it was very, uh, very interesting to go through it at that time, and I was so stirred by the story. And it really is a heroic, noble, amazing story, but it's not a Christ story necessarily. What he's doing is not for the glory of Christ, in a sense, it's for the thrill of adventure. And so though there is this unique layering of life, which we could call for the thrill of adventure, I would say that God has given that to us, but as a shadow, it's meant to be redeemed so that we could dare not as Shackleton, but as Stanley Dale. Okay, so that's just a, I'm going to dig into that more and more as we progress. So underneath it, it says Shackleton daring versus Dale daring. Both are very hardy, sort of grizzled men, and yet Shackleton is going to risk his life, and you could say, for what? And Stanley Dale is going to risk his life, and you could say, okay, for Jesus, that's what. So we want to dare as Stanley Dale dared. What keeps us from daring all for Jesus Christ? And so this is where I'm going to introduce you to the Kasu Marzu, because my question underneath this says, is it the Kasu Marzu? Is that what keeps us from daring for Jesus Christ? And this is actually my hypothesis as we start. Because remember, when you live in one body, you can assess things from your own perspective, but you can't always assess things from everyone else's perspective simultaneously. However, you can get a good hunch. Because we're all sort of wired the same. Even though we're different personalities and you know, we have some different functions, different thoughts and different leanings, we all sort of have the same propensities towards self, self-preservation, self-comfort, uh, 
self-aggrandizement. And so I'm going to make it my hypothesis that it maybe is the Kasu Marzu that is causing us to not come to the supper. Please have, have me excused. When I was in Indonesia, uh, they have some very unique dishes in Indonesia, and which is ironically where Papua New Guinea is now. That's part of Indonesia. And uh, they, they were really nice to me uh, to the degree they could be. But uh, because they knew that they wanted me to be healthy for the two-week stint I was there, and they know that when anyone comes in from the outside and eats their food, they get sick for about two weeks. And so they figured, okay, so they actually flew in a chef from Australia to cook for me the whole time I was there. And I, you know, I actually really appreciated that. But then near the end, when they didn't care as much about if I got sick or not, then they decided to start introducing me to some things. And I still remember... There was like, it was a bird brain, a pigeon brain uh, that was being passed around the table. And it's like, who in their right mind would ever want to eat this stuff, right? And <clears throat> so, and you could just sort of imagine, you know, Eric would be like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll pass. It was one of those swivel, I don't know what you call those, those, those tables, where, Lazy Susan's, Lazy Susan in the middle where it turns around and, you know, it's, it's like, oh, I'll pass on that. Is there anything, anything that looks remotely normal here that I could eat? So... I think it could be the Kasu Marzu. So here's some Kasu Marzu. It actually looks pretty nice. It looks like, you know, in this picture right here, like it's a bowl that you're going to pour some soup in. What's that one uh, thing when you, when you put soup in a, in a bread bowl? What was what that called? Soup bowl? Okay, that's all. That, that's the name of it. Okay, so it looks like a soup bowl, a bread soup bowl. However, it is more dangerous than that. Uh, so, Kasu Marzu, it's not very appetizing to our North American sensibilities. So let me read you a little about Kasu Marzu, just in case you thought that looked delightful and appetizing. When one thinks of cheese, the mouth begins to water and images of cheddar dance through the mind. In Sardinia, however, cheese has taken a horrendous turn. Kasu Marzu is considered a highly prized delicacy by the people of Sardinia. But what makes this cheese so special? Kasu Marzu translates to rotten cheese. And that's only the beginning of its disgusting story. <laughs> what really makes it a delicacy is the fact that it's teeming with live maggots. Kasu Marzu, or maggot cheese, begins its journey to disgust as a simple pecorino cheese soaked in brine, smoked, and left to cure in cellars. Enter the maggots. Cheese producers take a slab of cheese destined to become Kasu Marzu and leave it out in the open, breaking the skin to allow flies to enter the cheese and lay eggs. This particular fly, the cheese skipper, lays many eggs. Multiple flies may enter the cheese, filling the middle with thousands upon thousands of eggs. <laughs> the eggs then hatch, and the maggots begin doing what they do best, eating and defecating. As the maggots eat and poop, the enzymes produced by, the bodies, by their bodies rot and putrefy the inside of the cheese so that when it is opened for consumption, the inside is a gooey, sticky, gummy mass filled with countless amounts of live maggots. There are, however, hazards to dining on this delicacy. The maggots don't like to be upset. When the cheese is scooped, spread, or disturbed in any way on its journey to the mouth, the maggots will jump and launch themselves up to six inches in distance. That close to one's face, one may consider donning a pair of safety goggles to enjoy this rancid feast. <laughs> In the past, Kasu Marzu was banned by the European Union due to hygiene and food safety regulations. 
The EU didn't want people eating rotten cheese and live insects. However, the illegality of the cheese was overturned as Europe considered the cheese to be a traditional food of the Sardinian people and therefore not under judicial jurisdiction. Yes. Uh, okay, so when I say, why is it that we would say, could you please have me excused? Could it be the Kasumarzu? You see, as humans in our natural man state, when we see the heavenly delicacies, we see what God says, this is really good. We don't quite believe him because we see the Sardinians eating their Kasumarzu and going, mmm. It's almost like God looking down or the disciples in the past were reading the stories in the book of Acts and we see the disciples beaten up and then they rejoice. And we're like, I don't know, but I think their taste buds are different than mine. That isn't something that would cause me to rejoice. We don't see it. To us, it's a foreign delicacy and it looks actually, let's just be honest, disgusting. It is not something that is attractive to our soul. It is repulsive. So I'm going to introduce you to another one. I could have said this. This one's not as poetic sounding, but this is Hakarl. It's really hard to say, too. Hakarl. And it's rotten shark. Again, not very <clears throat> appetizing. So what you see, I didn't have a good picture of this, but this is a cellar with all sorts of sharks hanging, shark bodies hanging there, and they are rotting. So I'm going to introduce you to Hakarl, and I'm going to say it's basically the equivalent of Kasu Marzu, just a totally different delicacy. But this is a very, this is very fine eating in Iceland, guys. I mean, this is what you want to have on your plate if you're Icelandic. After catching the shark, it is quickly beheaded. Good. <clears throat> to eliminate the toxins, trimethylamine, oxide, and uric acid, a hole is dug. See, because shark is actually uh, poisonous to the human body, so as a result, they have to get these acids out. And so you're like, well, that's good, 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 get those acids out. A hole is dug, and the shark is placed inside. Rocks are placed on top of the shark. The pressure of the stones causes the toxins to leak out. This takes six to 12 weeks. During this time, the shark itself begins to rot and ferment within the ground. <clears throat> you guys uh, churning your appetite, getting it ready? Once purification is deemed a success, the shark is pulled from the ground, chopped into long pieces and hung to dry. Drying takes even longer. Several months will pass before Hakarl prepares or certain the shark is ready. How does one know when rotten shark is ready for consumption? When the ripe, rotten smell is at its peak and a dry, hard, brown crust forms on the hanging shark meat. Mmm, yum. Hakarl. There are precious few who can stomach this fine delicacy. Now, this is interesting because you know how you have those uh, foodie experts that have their shows and they travel around the world and eat things? It's interesting because usually they'll eat things that I think are totally disgusting. They'll be like, hmm, this is really good. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, that's terrible. But even the food experts consider this so disgusting. So listen to this quote I found. Chef and TV personality Anthony Bord I don't, Bourdain, I don't remember how to say his name, actually tried Hakarl once during his trip to Iceland and claimed that it was the worst, 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 worst thing <laughs> that he had ever tasted. While Chef Gordon Ramsay tried it during a television broadcast and immediately vomited into a bucket. <laughs> This is, in a sense, the way we naturally are going to relate to the delicacies of heaven. And I think it's important for us to note that, 
that we have taste buds of this earth. And what we are attracted to in this earth, just like you know, the, the curse over the serpent is that he would eat dust. And in a sense, we are satisfied with the dust of this earth. And we find it a delicacy to our natural man. The things of this earth are strangely satisfying. We want the things of this earth. Please don't take the things of this earth from us. But the things of this earth are passing away. They're actually harmful for us. And God is saying, I've made a banquet for you. I have a supper for you, and it is made of the greatest delicacies of heaven, but our taste buds are off. And so we look at them as kasumarzu or hekar. To us, they turn our stomach or our spiritual stomach, if you will. I don't, God, please, don't ask me to eat that. Don't ask me to go there. Don't ask me to do that. We have our list, and we could all sort of lay it out. We don't like to say it out loud that we have a list of things that are like caution points in our spiritual life. But it's like, God, please, don't, don't ever ask me to do that. We have them. What keeps us from daring all for Jesus Christ? Our natural sensibilities deem such behavior as kasu marzu and or hakarl, utterly repulsive. There are certain things that I have already brought up, yes, in, in the first episode of this series and in this one, that even though your spiritual man says yes, and you can't argue biblically, you can't. You know that God has an assignment for each of us. You know that he is craftiness and moldiness into delivery vehicles of his gospel for this world. Well, then why is it that we're saying, have me excused? Why wouldn't we want to be the ones that God would choose for the assignment? Well, if, if there was an angelic uh, character that came in here and he said, I'm speaking on behalf of Jehovah, he's looking for 10 good soldiers of the cross who will go and, and fulfill his assignment in this earth but we wanted to start here. We will find those 10, but we wanted to start here because we heard rumor that there were ready soldiers here. Wouldn't you want to be the one to shoot your hand up in the air first and not allow one of these other Ellerslie students to get the privilege? Hey, take me, please. And then there's the other Ellerslie student. No, no, take me. Oh, no, don't push them out of the way. No, no, please take me. We should desire the assignment. It is the privilege of privileges to get the assignment. And yet what we find ourselves doing is sitting on our hands. And the opportunity isn't before us, and the angel says, good enough, I will find them elsewhere. Don't let the opportunity pass by. Why don't we go? Well, there's various reasons. There's unknown challenges there. There's danger. There's discomfort they're strange foods, and believe me, when you start studying some of these locales with unreached people, there's some funny foods. You think kasu marzu and hakarl are odd. Well, that's just the beginnings of the list. They're strange bugs. In fact, I would say bugs rank at the top of many people's lists. Isn't that interesting that bugs would be the reason? It's like, and what, what did Amy Carmichael call them? Uh, creepy crawlies. She called them creepy crawlies, and she asked God for the grace, the boldness to go where God would call her, but she was concerned about creepy crawlies. Isn't that interesting that the great missionaries of the past dealt with some of the same things we do? We need to recognize that this is a human issue. God is desiring to elevate our lives so that we're not in bondage to human sensibilities, but that we are overcome by the Spirit of God and His 
sensibilities. So long and short, it's like a big spoonful of kasumazu. That's really why we don't want to go. It's like, well, I don't really want to eat that. So why don't we speak? You ever had that thought? God has a whole bunch of people around you every day that are in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why don't you speak? Well, it's uncomfortable. It's awkward. It appears foolish. We might stir up discomfort in others. We might awaken animosity in those we speak to, long and short. It sounds like a big forkful of rotten Icelandic shark. That's why. Why don't we rejoice in difficulty? Because we're commanded to, by the way, in Scripture. Well, because it's difficulty, you numbskull. You see, if it's difficulty, why in the world are we going to rejoice in it? Difficulty is bad. It's uncomfortable. It's to be avoided, not rejoiced over. It sounds like cheering when I find out maggot-filled cheese is going to be served tonight for dinner. Uh, Mom, what do we have for dinner? We have kasu marzu. Oh, yeah! That's like rejoicing in suffering. Why would I do that? Why do we fear death? Isn't that a, a great question? If you are a Christian, why would you fear death? Well, because death is, you know, death. Death means the end, hasta la vista, baby, all gone. Death means no more earthly pleasure, no more earthly warmth, and no more earthly friendship. It's like someone saying, hey, you can trade in your expensive steak dinner at Montaldo's for the most disgusting plate of hot carl ever. Interested? Why would you want to give up this life for something that is hot carl? Or is it? You see, those of us that know what Scripture says, we know that what we are headed into is so much better than what we have here. But what we have here, we have an affinity for it. We have taste buds for the steak dinner of this earth. And we don't really have taste buds developed for the, what seems like, hakarl of heaven. And so here's where we begin as Christians, and we say, God, I think my taste buds are off. Now, I don't know that our taste buds are off for the Icelandic shark and the uh, Sardinian rotten cheese. We could actually be correct, right? But when it comes to heavenly delicacies and God's saying, I know how I created you and I created you for this. And this is actually the best food that could ever come into your body, not just for enjoyment factor, but it could transform you and strengthen you. I know what you're designed for. Would you trust me? And we're like, oh boy, this, it's just not attractive to me, God. Listen to this. Imagine if God said to you, would you allow me to make it attractive to you? What are your thoughts to that? Would you allow God to make his kasumarzu and his hakarl attractive to you? Because you're going to be one of those kooks that's eating kasumarzu and everyone around you is like, are you actually eating that? Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. Oh, cuckoo. I don't want to be a fool that likes kasumarzu and hakarl. Oh, you do want to be that fool. Perspective, perspective, perspective. What we deem disgusting in one realm is considered an exquisite delicacy in another realm. But what if what, that which is considered rotten, spoiled, and yuck, according to our own human taste buds, is actually delectable to heavenly taste buds? Let's get some perspective. So 
here's the same questions I asked before. Why don't we go? Is leaving family, friends, and homeland yuck? Or is it of the highest, heavenly, is it heavenly intimacy of the highest order? You see, to leave everything that would give you comfort in this world, what do you find? You know what God is going to assure you? If you follow me, you're going to find intimacy with the king of the universe of the highest order. You see, to the degree that we allow for God to create a vacancy in our life because of obedience, he fills that and more. And heavenly intimacy is greater than earthly. So therefore, why don't we go? Well, I don't want to leave that which is familiar. I don't want to leave family, friends, my homeland. This is what I know the smells. I know the, 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 the feel. I, I, I have a rhythm here. I mean, I'm right there with you guys. I, I love this country. I, I've gone on multiple missions trips. And I remember my first one over to Eastern Europe when I came back. This is when I was around 19 or 20. I did think about leaning down and kissing the soil of the United States. <laughs> After, uh, what was it, a, a couple months of being around people that don't know, didn't know anything about underarm deodorant. Uh, I mean, it's weird. You, know, you take for granted the nice smells that we have over here, and you go over there, it's like that's a normal smell, just sort of a background smell. Everyone's used to it. They grew up, and it's like growing up in a barn. It's like, yeah, it just smells like a barn in here. And so when you come from the outside, it's like, whoa. And, you know, I don't know if that's changed over in Eastern Europe. I haven't been over there for a while. But wow. I was like, Lord, please give me a place that uses deodorant. And yet, what you're going to find with Christians throughout history is that when they are called and they're equipped by God, they actually find delight and pleasure with the odd sense and the odd behaviors. And they are built for what they are being called into. God will fit you for your calling. And with that comes great delight and pleasure in your calling. So why don't we speak? Is sharing the gospel with those that have never heard it crazy? Or is it the single greatest pleasure on earth? If you were to listen to C.T. Studd, C.T. Studd, again, one of my heroes, C.T. Studd would say, the greatest pleasure he has ever experienced in his life is leading someone to Jesus Christ. And at first, you just sort of want to go, uh, he's just saying what he's supposed to say. And yet, as you study C.T. Studd, you begin to realize, well, why did he build his whole life around it then? I think this guy's on to something. And when you see him so excited, people, you need to realize this is the greatest pleasure. It's like, you want to know what we're built for? We're built to convey Jesus. And when you agree with that, your spiritual taste buds, you know, skyrocket. They're like, whoa, this tastes good. Why don't we rejoice? Is it because persecution, difficulty, challenge, and suffering for Christ's sake is misery? Or the single greatest way to access the consolation of Christ Jesus? In the scriptures, we're going to see this idea of consolation, which isn't really the best word for us in the English language because we think of a consolation prize, which is sort of like, yeah, you came in last, but you get a little ribbon, you know, as a consolation prize. But the consolation of the kingdom of heaven is like the greatest thing you could ever get. It's like this blessing of epic proportion to your soul. It's the very nearness of God in your life. And so if you suffer, you get more of this consolation. 
to the degree that you have difficulty, you get more of this consolation, which causes you to say, well, I'd like more difficulty then. I had this one moment, uh, it was a couple years ago now. I was in the midst of an extreme trial that had gone on for multiple years. It was a very, very challenging season where God was teaching me not just suffering, but long-suffering. And I didn't ever think about the, the word long on long-suffering until I went through this because I was like, God, isn't this supposed to end? And I, I recognize the word long is there for a reason. It is a longer season than you're used to. It's like the upgrade of suffering. And I remember praying and saying, God, could you remove this thorn, please? And I'd asked many times. And I felt like God communicated with me something that was so important for me to comprehend. And that is, Eric, you know this intimacy that you and I have right now, this closeness that we are sharing? It is a direct result of that thorn being there. So I can remove it, but with that, we will lose some of that closeness that we have right now, that dependence that you have on me. Do you want me to remove that? And then suddenly I raise my hand as I'm walking. I'm like, whoa, God, whoa. I would rather have the closeness with the pain than to not have the pain and lose the closeness because the consolation is better. Isn't that an interesting? That's Eric Ludi, a human, reasoning through, having tasted both the pain and that consolation. And I say, if I have to lose the consolation by getting rid of the pain, I'll keep the pain because this is worth it. Why do we fear death? Is it because dying for the sake of Christ is doom or the doorway into the presence of the one we love more than anything on this earth? So when we recalibrate and when the Spirit of God actually corrects our soul to match the kingdom thinking, the Word of God, we actually are going to find freedom and liberty in our soul. The truth sets us free. And when we stare at the truth and agree with it, it's like, God, I agree with you. It actually sets us free from this phobia of Kasumarzu Christianity, of Hakaro Christianity. It's like, oh, I just don't want to eat that. You do. You actually want Christ's delicacies. Psalm 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is the same type of statement. I believe that my God's delicacies, that my God's presence is actually greater than anything this world can offer. And so I choose it. I would rather have the lowest position in this kingdom infrastructure and, and share in God's presence than be anywhere else. So here's an adapted version of Psalm 84.10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather eat God's heavenly kasumarzu in the house of my God than eat a perfectly cooked steak dinner from Montaldo's. Psalm 16.11. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So one of my questions for you is, do you believe the word of God? And if you do believe the word of God, do you believe Psalm 1611? You will show me the path of life. God, show me how I'm supposed to live. Show me what brings this body ultimately to life. God says, I will. And then look at this. In your presence is fullness of joy. You know that fullness of joy that you crave in the depths of your humanity? 
you're after something. You're after a satisfaction in your life. And God's going to say, well, you, want, you want to know where that is? It's found in my presence. And then look at this. You're at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know that pleasure-seeking dimension of who we are? It's interesting, but it's just compromised. It's perverted from what it's originally supposed to be after. You know, God's not against pleasure. He's against you seeking pleasure for self instead of seeking pleasure in him. And when you seek it in him, it's amazing, but you find pleasures forevermore. Who are the happiest people? The most pleasure-filled, the most comforted people on earth are actually Christians living in stride, eating what the world would deem kasu marzu and hakarl. It looks weird to the world. It's like, are you actually eating that? How could you find any satisfaction in that? And you're like, hmm, this is good stuff. You see, something has changed inside of you. You have been corrected. They are still incorrect. But you have been corrected to a heavenly pattern, and as a result, your taste buds are being refined by God to appropriate and appreciate the way he designed things. Luke 14, we're talking about suppers again, guys. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. But they with all with one accord began to make excuses. Here's some excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm, I'm going to test them. I asked to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. So how does the master respond to all these excuses? Does he like excuses? Does he understand, oh, you know, it's totally reasonable that they would not want to come to my supper, that they would not want to sit down and eat kasu marzu at the table of the king? Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. I do not want to be in that list of those that were invited that will not taste the supper. I want to taste the supper. And there's part of me that's like, what are you serving, God? I don't care what he is serving. We have to rest in the fact that he knows what we need. And if he's going to make a banquet, it's going to be the perfect banquet. Don't you want to be at God's supper? And so as a result, to make that decision to trust our God, even when our natural sensibilities seem a little off, C.T. Studd says, last June at the mouth of the Congo, there awaited a thousand prospectors, traders, merchants, and gold seekers waiting to rush into these regions as soon as the government opened the doors to them, for rumor declared that there is an abundance of gold. If such men hear so loudly the call of God and obey it, can it be the ears of Christ's soldiers are deaf to the call of God and the cries of the dying souls of men? Are gamblers for gold so many and gamblers for God so few? You see, gold is a fascination to the natural man. But God is a fascination to the spiritual man. In the same way a natural man will lay down his life and risk everything in the Congo to get the gold, we as Christians are willing to lay down our life and risk everything to get God. 
And that's what C.T. Studd is asking. Are gamblers for gold so many and gamblers for God? So few. Are you willing to do a little gambling and say, I actually believe God knows what I'm created for. I believe that even though my natural reticence is very real, I want the fullness of Jesus Christ. So if he wants me to go and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, my answer is yes. What may appear to be rancid shark down here is the purest and most holy taste for all those taste buds redeemed and made new by the living Christ in heaven. We need to allow God to touch our spiritual taste buds. Do you know that there's a spiritual man that overlays your natural man? When you are first born in Adam and you're living in your first life, your spiritual man has no... He's dead is the concept. So your eyes of your spiritual man are dead. They can't see. The nose of your spiritual man can't smell. The mouth of your spiritual man can't speak. Your heart of your spiritual man is rock hard. But when you are renewed, when you are resurrected in Christ Jesus, anyone in Christ is a new creature, a new creation. And so as a result, that spiritual man comes to life, and now you have spiritual eyes. You have a spiritual nose, you have a spiritual mouth, spiritual ears to hear, spiritual minds called the mind of Christ, a spiritual heart to feel what God feels. So if we were to dig down a little closer, spiritual taste buds. In other words, God wants to recreate the very things that you have in the natural. He wants to give you the supernatural variety of them. You don't just hear with earthly ears anymore. You hear with heavenly ears. And as a result, you're, hear, you're able to hear cries of lost people. Whereas when you were living for self in your natural man, you couldn't hear that. You're able to discern spiritual thoughts with your, with your spiritual mind. You're able to feel God's very burdens and ache for what God aches for and feel compassion for what God has compassion on with your spiritual heart. Well, isn't it possible that you have a spiritual taste bud set up that God wants to resurrect and give you the ability to discern and go, hmm, that actually is good. Whereas the world's going, oh, that's bad. That's yuck. That's the worst, 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 worst thing I've ever tasted. And it's like, this is actually the best, 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 best thing I've ever tasted. Could you imagine being able to discern and be able to be God's foodie? and be able to discern that that is good food right there. I don't care what the world says. When I'm falsely accused, this is actually an opportunity for me to give glory to God. When I suffer, this is actually an opportunity for me to showcase the nature of Christ in this earth. I get consolation. This is a wonderful deal. The supernatural taste bud change. It's something that God is very good at. So I'm going to give you just a little introduction to this idea of changed taste buds in and through Don and Carol Richardson. So this comes out uh, in Peace Child. So they're going to arrive at this foreign land, this Papua New Guinea territory. The smells are different. The sights are different. Everything's different. They have this little newborn child named Stephen. He's married. Don's married, and he has you know this new bride. And you just, you want to keep them safe. As a man, your natural instinct is to protect them and to preserve them from where they're about to go. Okay, there's so many reasons going through their head of, this isn't the best idea, this isn't the best idea. They're even pitched the worst and hardest part of New Guinea. It's like, well, you guys don't need to do it. If, if, it, if you think it's too much for you, know, you and your wife and, and your newborn, then we understand. I mean, there's so much tropical disease down here. There's so many dangerous creatures I mean, there's so many creatures that could easily devour a newborn child. 
the infant mortality rate in this zone is over 50%. And so to bring your newborn child down into it is just a certain form of crazy. And yet they're going to say, we want that. It's like, what's going on inside of them? So just listen to the way that they express it. This is Don Richardson. Our confidence in God was running at a high level and getting higher. Exhilarated with a buoyant spirit of trust, we never seriously considered that we never seriously considered that some dread disease of the swamps might steal the blush of health from our baby's cheeks, or that any other danger might seriously threaten any of us. If God be for us, who can be against us? Was the watchword that uplifted us night and day. It seemed furthermore that this bracing excitement was not our own but was being communicated to us through the presence of God, as if God himself had been waiting such a long, long time to do whatever he was going to do for the Sawi through us, and was delighted that at last the time had come. God's very excitement is in them. That's the way they would describe it. They were excited, but with like God's excitement. It's like, why are we so excited to go into this headhunting cannibal tribe? with our little baby in the midst of all sorts of tropical diseases. It's like so moist and dense down there. It's like you walk through water basically all day long. I mean, who would want this? It's Kasumarzu to the natural man. Bugs everywhere, for those of you that are thinking about bugs. Yeah, they're everywhere, and they're big. They have little uh, needle-sharp, uh, you know, on, on all the, they have something, what, what is it called? So, oh, I can't remember. It's like their, their main food that they eat. And it has like these six inch needle sharp thorns on it. It's like, yeah, honey, go out and play. Watch out for the six inch needle sharp thorns that are everywhere in the tropics. I mean, you've got to be kidding. This is a terrible idea. And yet, they are delighted to go. They can't wait to go. What's going on inside these people? So now they're going to arrive. This is a great scene in their story. But he has built his home, and it's, it's sort of the first edition of his home, and it, all sorts of drama. He's had multiple battles in front of his home already with these tribes, these competing tribes. And, uh, and so he and his wife and his child are making their way down the river. There's 60 miles of river travel from the nearest outpost. So they're in the middle of nowhere. And he's showing up, and on the bank are all these tribespeople in their war dress, painted and everything, and he has no idea. Are they going to kill us? Or, I mean, he has he have no idea. He can't speak the language, and they're all like, hoo, hoo, hoo. you know, they're making their noises. Is that like their preparation for a feast noises? I mean, they have no idea. These are headhunter cannibals. And so... But what do you do in this? This is the arrival. He has a wife and a, a little boy. Presently, the shouting became chanting. The leaping gave way to dancing. Wave after wave of warriors swirled closer as if to engulf us. Suddenly, in the blue glow of twilight, a presence, stronger than the presence of the multitude, enveloped us. The same presence that had first drawn us to trust in Christ and then wooed us across continents and oceans to this very jungle clearing. Before that presence, every superficial thought and feeling fled away, and I felt a deep probe go through my motives. Missionary, he was asking, why are you here? It was a question I had often fielded from the lips of unbelievers. Now my Lord was asking it, and there was no escape from the question. The eyes of every Sawi dancer seemed to ask it. Their voices seemed to chant it, their drums to echo it. I reviewed answers I had used in the past 
discarding them, but one by one. Secondary, incidental reasons no longer mattered, no, nor could ulterior ambitions endure the four-dimensional reality our task had now assumed. The descent to new bedrock took a few minutes. Then I breathed my answer. Lord Jesus, it is for you we stand here, immersed not in water but in sawy humanity. This is our baptism into the work you anticipated for us before creation. Keep us faithful. Empower us with your spirit. May your will be done among these people as it is in heaven. And if any good comes to them through us, the honor is yours. And he replied, The peace of God which passes all understanding shall garrison your hearts and minds through Christ. He's in the midst of this, this tribal noise. It just was just like ear you know, piercing. It was all right now. Our relationship was renewed. I could feel a fresh spring welling up inside. So now they're going to get inside the home. This is, I mean, it's really funny. Whenever you study these tribes that have never seen, uh, you know, these tuons, uh, these foreigners from the outside. And so they have like these fronds, uh, you know, covered things. So like leaves are covering their house. So you can see light through it. And so all the uh, tribal people are outside staring in through all the cracks. And you can imagine how nice that would feel and how private it would feel. <clears throat> Some of the dancers were now bearing torches which glowed eerily through our sago frond walls. And this is Don speaking to his wife, Carol. Close your eyes, honey, I whispered, and tell me what you see. She said, I see miles of grassland slipping by and egrets flying around us. I feel the canoe rocking. Now I see the sunset and all those people dancing around us. But I'm not afraid. I feel so different as if God has given me new emotional responses to enable me to live here. He had indeed, and to me also. That is one of the coolest statements I have ever seen in any biography. You see, many of us have an emotional response to a calling that we haven't even received yet. It's like eating kasu marzu for dinner tonight. It's like, oh God, I just can't do that. I can't get that down. And if you knew that you were going to be called to the Sawi tribe with your newly married wife and, and newborn child, I could understand why you would be a little afraid. This lady is in the middle of it, and her natural disposition probably isn't that different than yours as ladies in here. And yet, what does she say? I'm not afraid. She is surrounded by tribespeople that are headhunters right now. As she's saying this, she has her newborn child there with her. Everyone is staring in at her. She has zero privacy. This is a huge, she's 60 miles away along a river from the nearest outpost. But I'm not afraid. I feel so different as if God has given me new emotional responses to enable me to live here. He had indeed, and to me also. We have been given everything we need for life and godliness. We have been given everything we need to reach the unreached. We have been given everything we need to actually do the hardest things that we have been called to do and to do them without fear, with boldness and with courage. So instead of anticipating how miserable it's going to be trying to swallow the Kasumarzu down, oh, my calling, why did you give me that calling? To trust that God is going to renew you and he's going to set you aright so that when you get to that supper table, it's delightful. A.B. Simpson, there is not a command God gives his children for which he does not provide the enablement for obedience. 
He's not going to call you to something that he's also not going to enable you to do. And uh, this is our missionary motto of Stanley Dale that we'll just sort of repeat. Remember I said Stanley Dale didn't actually say this. This is like the composite of this entire series. We'll just repeat it often. Going enthusiastically, sharing courageously, serving sacrificially, suffering joyfully, dying triumphantly. That's what we want right there. Father, we ask that you would renew our senses, our spiritual senses, that we would be able to discern the kingdom of heaven, that we would have taste buds that are built by the king and not by this earth. Our sensibilities would be set aright by you. Lord, we ask for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.